Well, happy Sabbath to you all, and greetings to all our brethren and friends around the world. It's a beautiful Sabbath day here in Charlotte. We've been enjoying the crepe myrtles that are blossoming now, it seems, into the third month with all the variety of colors and just very inspiring. It brightens up our day. And, of course, last night we had an exciting uh, thunderstorm. I hope. How many of you enjoyed the thunderstorm last night? Good. That's uh, 99.5%. So it was very exciting. I went out on the porch and looked at the uh, sky and chain lightning uh, all across the sky and uh, some thunder booms right next to our home. Uh, It was just wonderful to see God's power and see the exciting uh, creation of God. And thankfully, of course, we pray for protection at the same time and that the rain will be a blessing to the land. In our recent international trip, my wife and I arrived in London Gatwick Airport on Monday morning, August 8th. Two days earlier, riots had erupted in London, including looting and the burning of shops, of stores, and people's homes and vehicles. Thankfully, we were able to avoid the danger, and rioting, however, did spread to other cities in Birmingham and Manchester, and Britain was shocked by the rampant criminality. The Economist magazine of August 13th, 2011, featured an article titled, Riots in London, Anarchy in the UK. Quote, shame was the first response of many people in Britain to the riots that started in Tottenham neighborhood of London on August 6th, skipped across the capital of the, of, in the following days and nights and spread to Manchester, Birmingham, and many other cities. Alongside the shame, there was, there was jolting bafflement. The law-abiding majority suddenly saw that some of their compatriots were happy to torch cars and buildings, loot shops, and attack firemen and ambulance crews. The confidence trick at the heart of social order was violently laid bare. It turns out that if sufficient numbers of criminals want to create havoc on the streets, they can. Now listen to this. In the absence of internal moral restraints, external ones can only do so much. Yes, in the absence of internal moral restraints, external ones can only do so much. So what was missing that led to this anarchy? What was missing was internal moral restraints. What was missing was godly character. We do need to challenge ourselves and every nation on earth to describe our own character and the character of our nation. And for our brethren around the world, how would you describe the character of your nation? The United States has this description. It was by a historian back in the 19th century, a Frenchman who visited the United States, and he was very impressed with the interwaterways and the transportation system, and he was impressed with the religion of the people. But he also made this observation of our nation. Alex de Tocqueville, quote, As one digs deeper into the national character of the Americans, one sees that they have sought the value of everything in this world only in the answer to the single question, how much money will it bring in? And doesn't that describe human nature and perhaps describes 
why we're experiencing the final financial crisis we are now. How does Canada view itself? This is from uh, George Radwanski and Julia Luttrell in a book, The Will of a Nation Awakening the Canadian Spirit. Quote, In only a century and a quarter since Confederation, Canadians have shaped out of the North American wilderness one of the most privileged societies on the face of the earth. Ranking among the seven most prosperous nations in the world, Canada is rich not only in the abundance of our resources and the magnificence of our land, but also in the diversity and the character of our people. We have, been, we have long been known as one of the most tolerant, progressive, innovative, caring, and peaceful societies in existence. End of quote. Well, I'm sure there's going to be some introspection later on that will give modification to that statement. But how does our individual character affect the character of our nation? The United States, of course, has been facing, and other nations, serious financial crises. And perhaps this February 2011 headline of the Christian Science Monitor will give us a hint. Quote, the deficit Americans should think about most personal character. Our huge public debt ultimately reflects our lack of individual restraint, but we can do better, end of quote. I wonder if we will do better. Let's turn to Deuteronomy, the fourth chapter. We realize our collective national character is the cause of today's national crises. What reputation should our nation and all of our nations, actually in the West and around the world, reflect. Deuteronomy 4 and verse 5. Deuteronomy 4, verse 5. Moses here is summarizing the trip and the mission of ancient Israel. Deuter Deuteronomy 4 and verse 5. Surely I have taught you statutes and judgments, just as the Eternal my God commanded me that you should act according to them in the land which you go to possess. Therefore, be careful to observe them, for this is your wisdom and your understanding in the sight of the peoples who will hear all these statutes and say, Surely this great nation is a wise and understanding people. That should be our national mission. For what great nation, if we were doing that, the response would be, verse 7, And what great nation is there that has God so near to it as the eternal our God is to us, for whatever reason we may call upon him? And what great nation is there that has such statutes and righteous judgments as are in all this law which I set before you this day? That should be our national purpose, the national purpose of Great Britain, the United States, Canada, Australia, New Zealand, and other nations around the world. A nation is comprised of its regions, its families, and its individuals. But what is the key? What constitutes a great nation? Its relationship with its creator, as we've just seen here in the scriptures. Let's back up to verse 3. Moses says, Your eyes have seen what the Eternal did at Baal Peor, for the Eternal your God has destroyed from among you all the men that fi followed Baal of Peor. But you, verse 4, held fast to the eternal your God, are alive. Those of you who did hold fast to the eternal your God are alive today, every one of you. Well, that's our calling. 
Israel ultimately failed in its national mission. As we heard in the sermonette, God has now called his church to fulfill that mission. As it tells us in Galatians 6.16, we are the Israel of God. In the Tomorrow's World November-December 2006 magazine, we had an article, Thanksgiving at Our National Mission. As I wrote in that article, quote, Our national purpose must include acknowledgement of our Creator. But our Western world has become more secular. Our Western world is fast spiraling down from biblical morality to worldliness and immorality. You know, the riots there in London showed that there were people who did not have character. They had no internal moral restraint. The Economist magazine compared the recent London riots with previous riots. Quote, This time, however, the complexion of the trouble is different from those earlier flare-ups. Its sheer mindlessness, it was, in a way, even more depressing. Now, I know what it's like to be caught up in mob attitudes. I Maybe I shouldn't tell you this story, but it was during my freshman year at uh, RPI, and we lived in the freshman dormitories, and, of course, there was tension building up with all the final exams. And for some reason, a group of students went out to outside the dormitory, took their textbooks, started a bonfire, and were burning their textbooks in frustration. And the police came, and, uh, of course, uh, they got up the, the microphone and actually provoked all of us by saying that he was, as I recall, I'm going, if you don't go back to your dormitories, I'm going to sh- set up a machine gun and break off all your legs. Well, of course, that just provoked us all the more in a mob attitude, you know, towards the police. But I know what it feels like. You can get caught up in a mob attitude. But God has called us to be individual ambassadors, to be his servants, his bond slaves who have godly character and with regardless of the circumstances around us can stand up for what is right. So where does character reside in human beings? It resides in our heart and mind. But mindlessness leads to satanic influence and all kinds of evils. So the Brits were considering, what is the cause of these riots? I hope you've read Mr. John Meekin's uh, commentary on our website. He was showing it really wasn't poverty. It wasn't the matter of social issues. It was something else. Here's the economist again trying to sort out the idea of uh, the cause. Quote, whatever the reasons... A moral malaise has gripped a minority of young Britons, a subgroup that is nevertheless big enough to terrorize and humiliate the country. Well, a malaise is defined by a vague sense of mental or moral ill-being. The character of a nation is composed of the character of its people, its individual citizens. And how does that affect us? Let's turn to Matthew, the 24th chapter Scripture, I believe, we've read more recently, but it certainly describes our day and age. And it's also a warning for us. How are we going to follow or stand up to the influence around us? Matthew 24, 
and verse 12. And because lawlessness will abound, the love of many will grow cold. We are affected by society for those around us. We think of the anarchy that was the title of that Economist magazine article, Anarchy in the UK. What is anarchy? Again, a Merriam-Webster dictionary definition, a state of lawlessness or political disorder due to absence of governmental authority. We know that lawlessness leads to destruction. And if it were not for a certain group of people on the earth, the whole world would end in cosmocide, as we know from Revelation, I'm sorry, Matthew 24, verses 21 and 22, except there would be an elect. Those days are shortened, but unless those days were shortened, verse 22, Matthew 24, no flesh would be saved. But for your sake, for the elect's sake, those days will be shortened. I think we need to understand the importance of our role and also of our calling because God has called us to be a part of the salt of the earth that preserves the earth because we're going to be teaching the world as kings and priests how to have world peace. Now, when you die, what remains of your identity? When you die, what do you take with you? The only thing you take with you is your character. The spirit of man and the spirit of God are combined to record your character. In essence, what remains, of course, is the real you, the godly character you've chosen for God to create in you. So it's important to know what you are and to know who you are and to ask the question, what degree of human nature controls my thoughts and actions? Think about that. Some of us have been around for a long time. What character do you have to resist temptations? Let's turn to First John, the first chapter. Dr. Meredith last week exhorted us to repent of sin, any sins that we may be practicing. There's a distinction here, though not just made clear, but we can infer from what the Apostle John writes in terms of practicing sin, because he says, if we sin, we have an advocate with the Father. That's 1 John 1, 1 John 2, verse 1. My little children, these things I write to you so that you may not sin. And if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. So he's our lawyer. He's our Intercessor, He's our great high priest who intercedes for us when we repent, when we sin and repent of that sin, and we ask God's forgiveness. And again, he tells us in 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. But notice in verse 5, 1 John 1, This is the message which we have heard from him and declare to you that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. They're just opposites. If we say that we have fellowship with him and walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. Again, he's talking about practicing the truth. And keep that concept in mind when you think about developing godly character. 
What is your practice? What is the fruit of your daily routine and habit, reactions to circumstances? What do you practice? One thing you must not practice is must not practice sin. We had that strong warning in the sermon last week. If any of you or I are practicing sin, we need to stop. We need to repent of it. We need God's help. We may, you may need to counsel. If you're addicted to something and you need help, you need to counsel. But it was a very strong warning and a very serious warning that we received last week. We do not practice sin. We are human and we are all going to sin. We all make mistakes. But the key is, of course, having that repentant attitude always that you are committed now and forever. Well, it won't be forever now until you be uh, born into God's kingdom to have that repentant attitude. That when someone shows you that you have sinned or you have a weakness, you have a problem, to acknowledge it and to take action so that you will not practice sin. Righteous character is practicing the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, verse 7, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus Christ his Son cleanses us from all sin. What an incredible blessing God has given us in this whole process of character development, that when we sin, we can be forgiven because the blood of Christ still cleanses us from sin. God has called us to grow in godly character. The title of the sermon today is Growing in Godly Character. The world and mainstream religion do not understand our need to grow in godly character. Why? Because of the false doctrine that says, once saved, always saved. Now, that's true. Once you're born into the kingdom of God, once you are eternally saved, you're eternally always saved. But the way it's applied in mainstream Protestantism is a false doctrine. We are in the process of being saved. You've heard our commentary on that before. We have been saved from our past sins. We are now being saved. And he that endures unto the end, the same shall be saved. There's a past, present, and future aspect of our salvation. We must continue to grow in the grace and knowledge of Christ. And the holy days reveal God's plan of salvation. It's not just one festival. It's seven festivals and seven holy days. Once we're reconciled, we need to grow during a lifetime. So how would you describe your character now? Would you say you have godly character? You have weak character? You're primarily carnal in your character? Are you unstable? Are you tested and predictable? Are you immature or mature and still growing? Let's turn to Hebrews, the 12th chapter. The Bible gives us several examples of weak characters and strong characters in the Bible. Hebrews, the 12th chapter and verse 14, we see the one individual who was weak in character Hebrews 12, we'll start with verse 14. Pursue peace with all people in holiness, without which no one will see the Lord. Looking carefully, lest anyone fall short of the grace of God, lest any root of bitterness springing up 
cause trouble, and by this many become defiled. Lest there be any fornicator or profane person like Esau, who for one morsel of food sold his birthright. He was weak in character. He didn't stand up for his responsibility and his blessing. For you know that afterward, when he wanted to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no place for repentance, though he sought it diligently with tears. Esau gave up his birthright for a bowl of soup. I won't turn there, but you know about Reuben, who was disqualified as well from a double blessing because of his sin. Let's turn to uh, Matthew, the sixth chapter, Matthew 6. And again, how strong is your character? Matthew, the sixth chapter. Faith is a strong element of character. Matthew 6, verse 30 Uh, Jesus was emphasizing this point and making it very clear. Matthew 6, verse 30. Now, if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Would you like Jesus to say that to you even now, O you of little faith? We know we have our ups and downs. Sometimes we feel strong in the faith, perhaps after we've fasted a while, after we've had a good Bible study. We realize that faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the Word of God, as it tells us in Romans. But do we want to be at the end of this question, O you of little faith? Therefore, do not worry, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For after all these things the Gentiles seek. For your heavenly Father knows that you need all these things. No, God is infinite. He knows every hair on our head. He knows all the atoms and molecules in the universe. He's in control. He knows you need all these things. But seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, and all these things shall be added to you. Therefore, do not worry about tomorrow for tomorrow will worry about its own things, sufficient for the day is its own trouble. There are those who've lacked character and have had little faith. Let's take a look at a few of those comments in the book of Proverbs. Turn back to Proverbs 16 and verse 32. Proverbs 16 and verse 32. He who is slow to anger is better than the mighty. And he who rules his spirit, then he who takes a city. Here's a positive statement about someone who has character, who can control his or her emotions. Proverbs 16, 32. He who is slow to anger is better than the mighty. And he who rules his spirit, then he that takes a city. And we think about all the great commanders and the great military campaigns of history. And yet God says, you, if you control your spirit, you are greater than a general, greater than an army, greater than he who takes a city. Proverbs, the 24th chapter, and verse 10. Proverbs 24 and verse 10. Dr. Meredith has quoted from this recently in terms of our responsibility to cry aloud and spare not. And to fulfill the warnings of Ezekiel in chapter Ezekiel 33, Proverbs 24, verse 10. If you faint in the day of adversity, 
Your strength is small. So God does not expect you to faint in the day of adversity. Deliver those who are drawn toward death and hold back those stumbling to the slaughter. If you say, surely we do not know this, does not he who weighs the hearts consider it? He who keeps your soul, does he not know it? And will he not render to each man according to his deeds? In other words, we need to consider our calling, consider our responsibility. Are we fulfilling God's will in our own lives? Verse 16 of uh, Proverbs 24 Again, speaks to strong character. For a righteous man may fall seven times and rises again. Well, that's perseverance. That's that sixth law of success. Perseverance, stick to itiveness. But the wicked shall fall by calamity. So you'd never give up. Proverbs 25 and verse 28. Proverbs 25, 28. He who has no rule over his own spirit is like a city broken down without walls. And again, we know we all have different personalities. We all have different emotional profiles. Some of us, you know, little children have differences in personality. A little, one little child, you might just say, boo, and he cries or she cries. Another one you can uh, spank and uh, is just... Uh, hardened and stoical and will not even cry uh, after uh, a certain uh, discipline. So there are differences in emotional profiles, and we all need to, of course, grow in emotional maturity. So we've seen a couple of examples of weak character and strong character, but there's one, of course, a prominent classic example of strong character, and you wonder how strong our character is. Genesis, the 45th chapter, starting with uh, verse 5. Genesis 45 and uh, verse 5. Again, Joseph was sold into Egypt, and he says, But be not therefore, after his brothers came back to him, he, he was uh, conciliatory. But now do not be grieved or angry with yourselves, because you sold me here, for God sent me before you to preserve life. For these two years the famine has been in the land, and there are still five years in which there will be neither plowing nor harvesting. And God sent me before you to preserve a posterity for you in the earth and to save your lives by a great deliverance. So you understand that even all of the trials that Joseph experienced, being sold as a slave, and then, of course, being falsely accused by his master's wife that he had attempted to uh, violate her, and he sent to prison. And yet, he learned some lessons. God gave him grace and favor in the sight of the prison superintendent. So again, uh, Joseph was faithful. He said, why should I sin against my God when that wife tried to tempt him into adultery. He was strong in character. He resisted. I'll just read, finally found the scripture I'm looking for. Thank you. Uh, Genesis 39 and verse 7. Joseph resisted the temptation. Genesis 39 and uh, verse 7. And it came to pass that after these things that his master's wife cast longing eyes on Joseph 
And she said, lie with me. But he refused, verse 8, and said to his master's wife, Look, my master does not know what is with me in this house, and he has committed all that he has to my hand. There is no one greater in this house than I, nor has he kept back anything from me but you, because you are his wife. Notice this, the end of verse 9. How then can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? No, the commandment, thou shalt not commit adultery, was in force before Mount Sinai. But he had the character to resist temptation. He would not sin against God. How do we learn? We learn through the lessons of life, our experience. We had a sermon, number 418, titled Learning Lessons. And then Mr. Mario Hernandez's sermon a few weeks ago, Why Suffering?, followed by my sermon on lasting lessons of suffering. So that's one of the ways we learn character. Romans 8, let's turn there. Romans the 8th chapter. Again, one of the most encouraging scriptures when we suffer. To think about this particular verse is we grow in godly character, and we learn lessons. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time, Romans 8, 18, are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. We have to bear our cross, and we made that commitment at baptism. Let's turn back to Luke, the 14th chapter, Luke 14 and verse 25. We all have crosses to bear. It may be a physical ailment or sickness or disease. It may be um, our environment. It may be uh, family relation problems. We all have crosses to bear. But what did Jesus say in Luke, the 14th chapter, and starting with verse 25? Now great multitudes went with him, and he turned and said to them, Verse 26, if anyone comes to me and does not hate or love less by comparison, his father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, and his own life also, he cannot be my disciple. In this section, you read the three cannots. And so we need to seriously consider the commitments that Christ gives us. But notice verse 27, and whoever does not bear his cross and come after me, cannot be my disciple. And we have ministers, of course, hear complaints from people that I have this problem, I have that problem, and therefore, you know, I'm just going to give up. Well, no. Christ says, whatever cross you bear, you must still, what? Come after me. You must consider to pursue Christ and hold on to him regardless of your problems whether it's persecution or a health problem or whatever. Luke, the ninth chapter, he also emphasizes the same point in a different way. Luke 9 and verse 23. Luke 9, verse 23. The heading is, Take up the cross and follow him. Then he said to them all, If anyone desires to come after me, and there are some in the church who 
say, oh, no, we shouldn't emphasize Christ at all. But he says, if anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever desires to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what profit is it to a man if he gains the whole world and is himself destroyed or lost? For what whoever is ashamed of me and my words, and it's amazing how some individuals in the church just think we're preaching about Christ too much. Well, perhaps those individuals should read this scripture. For whoever is ashamed of me and my words, of him the Son of Man will be ashamed when he comes in his own glory and in his Father's and of the holy angels. Christ is our living, loving Savior. He is our active high priest. And our relationship with him and with the Father are extremely important. How do we learn? We learn by taking up our cross daily. And how do we grow? Well, another way, of course, of growing is by stepping out in faith. And all of us, perhaps, I hope most of us have uh, learned that lesson when we had to first keep the the Sabbath day. And I know it was a a situation with uh, my being employed and I was hired by the AAA of New York uh, to be a traffic engineer. And I remember telling them once I found out <clears throat> that uh, I needed to keep the Sabbath. Uh, I had not started working for them. I was still working on my graduate class in, in Yale at the time. And I remember that uh, the uh, the hiring department head called me and said, well, Dick, you said uh, you said that you could not work any time during the Saturday. And he said, but the AAA here in New York, which is the second largest AAA club in the United States after Los Angeles, uh, you would need to train on Saturdays, uh, AAA, and therefore we can't hire you. And I know I went home that day with the most comfortable, wonderful feeling that God had passed a little test. And then God gave me a, a job that later on that was even more challenging, more inspiring for having passed that test. And some of you have faced even more challenging tests when it comes to uh, the challenges of uh, getting your children out of school for the feast or your, your own employment during the feast time. But we have to stand up for what is right and trust God. And when we do, we stand up, we learn to, by stepping out in faith. We obey God in faith. That's Psalm 111.10, of course, when he says, The fear of the eternal is the beginning of wisdom, a good understanding. Have all those who do his commandment. What is the very key of character development? Remember that God does not create character by fiat, is what Mr. Armstrong used the term. That is by automatic, that we are robots, we're automatons, uh, we have it made. No. How do we learn and grow in godly character? Well, you know the answer, I think, Deuteronomy 30, verse 19. It's a key to the very plan and purpose God is working out here below, that it requires our choosing between good and evil and right and wrong. 
And that process is a process that helps us to learn lessons when we make the wrong decision and to grow in character strength when we make the right decisions. Deuteronomy 30 and verse 19. I call heaven and earth as witnesses today against you, God says, that I have set before you life and death, blessing and cursing. Therefore, choose life that both you and your descendants may live, that you may love the Lord your God, that you may obey his voice, that you may cling to him. The key of right relationships, the key of national character and individual character is our relationship with God and with Christ, the first and second commandments, that you may cling to him. Do you think of yourselves as clinging to him? For he is your life and the length of your days, and that you may dwell in the land which the Eternal swore to your fathers, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, to give them. Mr. Herbert Armstrong called character development the supreme creative accomplishment. It's based on making choices, and we make hundreds of choices every day. Do we make the right choices? And that depends, may depend on the degree of spiritual character and your closeness to God and to Christ. We'll see some of those uh, practical steps a little later. But Mystery of the Ages, pages uh, 69 and 70, is one of the more fundamental descriptions of who and what we are in the process of godly character growth. The supreme creative accomplishment is the subhead. Mystery of the Ages, page 69, quote, God assigns angels responsibilities, but God created within them minds with power to think, to reason, to make choices and decisions. But there was one super important quality that even God's creative powers could not create instantly by fiat. The same perfect, holy, righteous character inherent in both God and the Word. This kind of character must be developed by choice and the intent of the one in whom it comes to exist. It takes a lifetime to grow in godly character. And we know that the whole history of the world is one of suffering and pain because of following Satan's way rather than God's way. And the world will have that wonderful opportunity in the white throne judgment. Those who, those who failed, those who were deceived by Satan. Turn to Matthew, the 11th chapter. I normally cover these, of course, on the last great day. But it is one of the most inspiring and wonderful truths and that God has revealed to his church to understand that those who were blinded, those who were enslaved to Satan in sin, will have an opportunity if they did not commit the unpardonable sin, if they did not seal their character to be like Satan's in evil. Matthew, the 11th chapter, verse 20. It's woe to the impenitent cities, is the subhead. Matthew 11:20. Then Jesus began to rebuke the cities in which most of his mighty works had been done because they did not repent. Woe to you, Chorazin! Woe to you, Bethsaida! 
For if the mighty works which were done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. Of course, the only nation state that ever did was Nineveh, but they repented at the preaching of Jonah. Verse 22, But I say to you, it will be more tolerable for Tyre and Sidon in the day of judgment than for you. And you, Capernaum, who are exalted to heaven, will be brought down to Hades, or the grave. For if the mighty works which were done in you had been done in Sodom, it would have remained until this day. Verse 24 is one of the just shocking and amazing statements. It's not, in another way, it's very comforting and revealing to God's plan. But I say to you that it shall be more tolerable for the land of Sodom in the day of judgment than for you. They will have learned their lessons. The last memory that they will have will be their flesh burning off their bones and the torment and the pain that they experience because of their wickedness and evil and sin. But when they come up in the white throne judgment, Jesus said it will be more tolerable for them. They will have an opportunity to repent. There are others, of course, that We'll have that opportunity in the white throne judgment, but we can be thankful that we, hopefully, will learn the lessons we need to learn now, not through pain and suffering, although some of us do have to learn the hard way, but that we can, of our own individual initiative, decide that we love God's commandments, as we sang in the hymn earlier today. We sang, oh, how love I thy law, you know, Psalm 119, verse 97. What is character? Of course, there are many definitions. There are actually several secular organizations that are dedicated to character development. Uh, One of the uh, definitions of character, it's uh, anonymous, is character is what you are in the dark. And that's so true. When I think back in my own life, you're, you're in the dark. No one sees me. I can get away with my sin. But everything is light to God. He knows what's going on. I'll just mention a couple of these institutions. Those of us who were in California for a long time would hear a commentary on radio every once in a while called Character Counts. That's the Josephson Institute, the Center for Youth Ethics. Uh, he has six pillars of character. You don't need to write these down because you can describe character in many hundreds of characteristics, I suppose. But he lists trustworthiness. Trustworthiness. And we'll talk about trust later if we have time. Respect. Responsibility. Fairness. Caring. And citizenship. There's another uh, group beside the Josephson Institute. It's called the Character Council. And they give six steps to uh, developing good character. They say a character quality is a habit that you can develop through repeated practice. That's true. Good character contributes to success. They have six steps. Understand the quality, grasp its actions, realize its benefits, Practice its actions, encourage it in others, and be encouraged. And, of course, Ambassador College students were assigned to read the autobiography of Benjamin Franklin, who had his own system 
of growing and overcoming, he would work on one characteristic at a time. For example, silence. And if during the week he didn't practice that particular trait, he'd put a check mark. And he worked on another week, honesty. And then he'd work on another week on patience. So he was actively trying to work on his own characteristics. Ambassador College has been characterized as a character-building institution. And having gone through Ambassador College, I can say, yes, it was a character-building institution. And of course, an institution by itself is not just the building, but it's the dynamics of teachers. Dr. Meredith, who taught me years ago, and others, Mr. Herbert Armstrong. Mystery of the Ages, page 140, Mr. Herbert Armstrong comments about the effect of Ambassador College. He writes on page 140, Jesus Christ through the church built three colleges, two in the United States and one in England. The three campuses in material beauty have mutually excelled each other as high character physical setting for the development of God's righteous character in students. The beauty of godly character in these students has excelled the physical beauty of the campuses. Well, that's quite a comment. The beauty of godly character in these students has excelled the physical beauty of the campuses, but we could say right here, the godly character of our brethren in Charlotte and around the world has also excelled any physical beauty of our environment. Mr. Armstrong continues, A royal queen on a recent six-day visit to the headquarters campus in Pasadena, California, on touring the campus exclaimed, I have just been in heaven. Of course, my wife and I got to meet uh, Her Majesty, the Queen from Thailand, and appreciated that. Living University has one of its objectives, quote, to enhance the individual development of character, personality, and true values by fostering and maintaining an academic community emphasizing moral, social, ethical, cultural, and spiritual standards, end of quote. And that's on page 8 of this uh, new catalog. If you haven't got it, you can get it online. Uh, General Catalog, Living University. And uh, again, we appreciate the five students who are on site and have just started this new semester that are here on our campus in Charlotte. Dr. Meredith writes in that catalog, I'll just quote, he has an excellent founder statement. I would encourage all of you to read it as you have time. He writes, at Living University, in all we do, we challenge each other to fulfill our motto, recapture true values, by demonstrating our core values of leadership, service, commitment, integrity, excellence, culture, and creativity. These values are embedded in God's way of life as detailed in the Bible. Martin Luther King said this about the function of education, quote, The function of education is to teach one to think intensively and to think critically. Intelligence plus character, that is the goal of true education. And, of course, we have a missing dimension, however, in Living University. 
and we may discuss that a little later. Let's turn back to Deuteronomy, the 11th chapter, Deuteronomy 11. So character is extremely important. It's what we're here for. We're learning the character of Christ. We're learning divine nature. We're learning the very character of God, our Father, to be like Him. And we also have to teach our children character as well. Deuteronomy 11 and verse 18. Deuteronomy 11, verse 18. Therefore you shall lay up these words of mine in your heart. Again, Moses is speaking to Israel before they go into the promised land. Therefore you shall lay up these words of mine in your heart and in your soul and bind them as a sign on your hand. And they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. Of course, the uh, Jews do that in a physical way where God, of course, wants us to do that spiritually. Verse 19, Deuteronomy 11. You shall teach them to your children, speaking of them when you sit in your home, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, and when you rise up. And you shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates, that your days and the days of your children may be multiplied in the land of which the Eternal swore to your fathers to give them, like the days of the heavens above the earth. Colin Powell, who was a former U.S. Secretary of State, was speaking at a White House conference on character and community. That was June 19, 2002. He stated, quote, Character means having a conscience, a conscience that is always present, that is always acting, that is always guiding you, It's an internal moral compass that is always pointing in the true direction, always keeps you on track, gives you the strength to stay away from the temptations that come along, reflects a set of ethical values that we believe in and we want all of our children to have, a set of ethical values that begins with honesty. If you can be trusted always to be honest, to do the right thing, you can then be counted on to be a fair person, always considerate of others, always doing unto others as you would have done unto yourself. Oh, if you have read Dr. Meredith's booklet on the Ten Commandments, you know that one commandment that you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor is a critical one. Colin Powell talked about integrity and always being honest As Dr. Meredith brings out in the Ten Commandment booklet, a person who cannot tell the truth cannot repent because he will not admit responsibility of his own sins. And I've known people who have been irresponsible, and anything that happened to them, whether it was getting stopped by a policeman for speeding or whatever the the, uh, situation may have been, would never accept responsibility for his or her own actions. And that's key. We must have that integrity to be totally honest with ourselves and to be honest with God. So what is your character like and how would you describe your character? One who loves God and neighbor and loves your enemy, as we talked about in recent sermons. Are you one in whom God is developing and producing the Holy Spirit? Now, when we look to people in the world who have character, And some of us complain about our circumstances. 
Maybe because of the hurricane, we had no electricity for a couple days, or we have this little problem with a neighbor or some other fault or some other persecution or some other kind of uh, financial problem, relationship problem. But sometimes when we look at people who are disabled or have handicaps, and then we look at ourselves and say, well, if this person can do that, what am I complaining about? I'll just give you an example. Of course, 2012, in London, they're already preparing for it. We saw uh, the evidence around Trafalgar Square in London when we were there. Uh, they're preparing for the London uh, World Olympics in London in 2012. But they'll also have a disabled Olympic Games, the London Paralympic Games, they're called, that begin the 29th of August in 2012. And that's when disabled athletes will take part in the world's largest multinational sporting event in the world of disabled sports. They have swimming, table tennis, wheelchair rugby, goal ball, wheelchair fencing, archery, seven-a-side and five-a-side football, track cycling and wheelchair tennis, powerlifting, judo, wheelchair basketball, bocce, sitting volleyball will take place at, that all take place at the Excel Center equestrian events. And you've seen people, and I have too, that are remarkable. And uh, I know of one individual who was a, a veteran, I believe it was a veteran of uh, Vietnam back there in Pasadena, no legs. And uh, Mr. Harry Snyder, our trainer there, worked with him and, and helped him to uh, do push-ups and, and, uh, with no legs. Yet he would be there in our gymnasium or in the uh, weight room, working on the rebounder, lifting weights. His goal was to walk across the United States without legs. He did that by doing what you might call a modified push-up. He would push his body up, swing his torso forward, let his torso drop on the pavement, then move his hands forward and do another push-up, swing his body forward, and that way move across the pavement. For a while he had a support system. Later on he had to do it on his own. He had a wheelchair, so he would drive his vehicle a mile up, take a wheelchair back to one mile, leave the wheelchair there, do his mile, get in the van, drive the man back, and get his wheelchair. He did that all on his own for quite a few of those thousands of miles across the United States. But when we think of people, and you know of friends or relatives or individuals you've seen in general society or handicapped and yet have accomplished so much, we have two arms, most of us, two arms, two legs, eyes and ears, and yet here are people who have character far beyond what we may have if we were in their condition. But there are four steps to character development. And I've listed these before, but I'll list them again, because it's instructive as to how anyone will grow in godly character. The first step is the willingness and ability to understand right from wrong. You can't even begin to build godly character if you do not know right from wrong. 
And you may not even have the willingness. You may have the access to the truth, which many of our families do, and friends and people who've been in the church before who've apostatized have the willingness, have the ability to understand right from wrong, but don't have the willingness to. But the number one is the willingness and the ability to determine and to understand right from wrong. The riots in London certainly displayed these people had mindlessness. They had no sense of right and wrong. Or if they did, uh, they certainly didn't practice. Number two is the commitment to choose living righteously. So you may find out, oh, I know what's right. I know it's right to keep the seventh-day Sabbath. But uh, the uh, circumstances are too difficult. Uh, my family will get upset with me if I quit my job working on the Sabbath. So number two is the commitment to choose living righteously. And right there, many stop at building godly character or allowing God to create in them with our own volition. Number three, once you've decided to do what is right, then you've got to resist all temptations to compromise. I've given the example of, of smoking before. Well, you realize that, oh, I, I know the doctor tells me I'm going to die of lung cancer, therefore I know it's right for me to quit smoking, and then you have to make a decision or a commitment to do that or not. Once you've made that commitment, temptations are going to come along. Will you resist those temptations? The degree to which we resist temptations speaks loudly about our godly character, the degree of our godly character. And I know I'm human, and I can see something that tempts me, and I have to make a decision. And I'm going to continue to cultivate that temptation, or am I going to say no and go away from that temptation? The third step is to resist all temptations to compromise. Fourthly, is to practice righteous living until it becomes habit and internalized. And so many of you have godly character. You have internalized the fruits of God's Spirit, at least some of them to a certain degree. You have internalized a way of life that you know God's way of life. You know the holy days. You know the plan of salvation. You know the Ten Commandments. And you know what is the right way to go. And what to say and what not to say. What to do and not to do. And yes, there are gray areas sometimes that challenge us. There is a, an anonymous quotation that says, Watch your thoughts, for they become words. Watch your words... For they become actions. Watch your actions because they become habits. Watch your habits for they become character. Watch your character for it becomes your destiny. It starts with what we think. And that's why, of course, we're told by uh, the Apostle Paul to bring every thought into the captivity of Christ. Mystery of the Ages, I think I started to uh, read that, um, the definition of 
character, a very prominent and very um, profound statement. Mr. Armstrong writes, quote, I repeat, such perfect character must be developed. It requires the free choice and decision of the separate entity in whom it is to be created. But further, even then, it must be instilled by and from the holy God who only has such righteous character to endow. But what do we mean by righteous character? Perfect, holy, righteous character is the ability in such separate entity to come to discern true and the true and right way from the false, to make voluntarily a full and unconditional surrender to God and His perfect way, to yield to be conquered by God, to determine even against temptation or self-desire to live and to do right, do the right. And even then, such holy character is the gift of God. It comes by yielding to God to instill His law, God's right way of life, within the entity who so decides and wills. Actually, this perfect character comes only from God as instilled within the entity of His creation upon voluntary acquiescence even after severe trial and test. So we understand that we are tested. We're tested in so many different ways. In the current Living Church News, the September-October 2011 editorial by Dr. Meredith is titled, Faith, Antidote to Worldliness. He writes on page 5 of the current LCN, September-October 2011, quote, If many of us continue to have one foot in the world and one foot in the church, we cannot have the faith we need, because one of the greatest destroyers of faith is guilt. And when you and I compromise, when you and I compromise ourselves with this world and with Satan, we are markedly decreasing our own faith and closeness to God. So we need to fight the good fight of faith, as Timothy tells us in 1 Timothy 6, verse 12. We need to resist the devil, and he will flee from us, as it tells us in James 4 and verse 7. And you know about weight training. Weight training builds muscles. Spiritual discipline builds strong character. Let's turn to Romans, the fifth chapter. Romans, the fifth chapter, one of the few places in the New King James Bible that character is mentioned. In fact, the King James Bible does not use the word character. It will use the word experience. Romans 5 and verse 1. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom also we have access by faith into this grace in which we stand and rejoice in hope of the glory of God. I'm tempted to digress here in thinking about uh, God's grace, where we've been accused of speaking too much about grace. But that's what the Bible tells us. We are under grace, God's grace. And I was just challenging uh, our living university students the other night at the reception as to what is the last verse in the Bible. And I think I've asked you this question before. How many of you can quote or nearly paraphrase 
the very last verse in the Bible. See your hands. Very good. Okay, about 12 people. (laughs) Number 12 is the number of beginnings, organized beginnings. So the first verse in the Bible and the last verse of the Bible are very important. I think you all know the first verse in the Bible, Genesis 1-1, God created the heavens and the earth. But the last verse of the Bible is Revelation 22, verse 21. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Amen. And I just started looking through Paul's epistles here the other day. And the Apostle Paul ends several of his epistles with the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. And in one case, be with you all. You want the grace of Jesus Christ. You want God's grace. And don't let anyone ever try to uh, say you are putting too much emphasis on grace. That is God's favor. It's his mercy. And it's biblical. Through whom also we have access by faith into this grace in which we stand and rejoice in hope of the glory of God. And not only that, but we also glory in tribulations, knowing that tribulation produces perseverance. And perseverance, character. And character, hope. Now, hope does not disappoint because the love of God has been poured out in our hearts by the Holy Spirit, who or which as was given to us. So yes, experience through tribulation, perseverance, those are the ways we grow in godly character. I might refer you to uh, Dr. Meredith's sermon, The Importance of Character, uh, number 449, and another one, God's Greatest Creation, uh, number 399. Let's turn to 2 Timothy, the first chapter. As we heard from the quote by Mr. Armstrong, that really God's character requires God's gift, and that's the Holy Spirit. Second Timothy 1. So how are you going to go in godly character? We have normal, natural character, and we can see those incredible characteristics in people who are handicapped, people who are disabled, and yet they go forward. They produce. They have determination. They persevere. Second Timothy, the first chapter, starting with verse 7. For God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of a sound mind. Well, that's God's gift to us. And we have to, verse 6, do something. Therefore, I remind you to stir up the gift of God, which is in you through the laying on of my hands. So God's spirit is the spirit of love. We've just read in Romans 5, 5, that it's shed abroad in our hearts. The love of God is shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Spirit, which is given to us. God's spirit is the spirit of truth. It's the spirit of prophecy. It's the spirit of the resurrection, as you read in Romans 8 and verse 11. What is the key of growing and overcoming? Of course, there are many biblical keys, but... Dr. Meredith has emphasized, and we all agree, Galatians 2.20. I have been crucified with Christ. That is the old man, the old nature. There are two chapters that talk about the old man and the new man, Colossians 3 and Ephesians 4. You might read those 
some time with that thought in mind. The old man and the new man. The old man tries to resurrect himself with that carnal human nature. And that's why he says in Colossians 3, mortify the deeds of the flesh. We have to take action. And, of course, our former association would say anything that takes action is salvation by works. No, God expects you to do something. That's why we have seven festivals, one of which is called the Days of Unleavened Bread, that after reconciliation to God through the sacrifice of His Son, we still do something. And we replace the leaven of malice and wickedness with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. It's a process of replacing human nature with God's nature. I mentioned the sermon on God's greatest creation, and I, I think about those saints who have died, and of course anyone who has God's spirit uh, is a saint, as defined biblically. And I, at the top of my head, I just think of our ministers who have died, ministers' wives who have died, regular members who have died of cancer. And I can think of a dozen off the top of my head whom I saw in their dying state and knew that they had that spiritual character that was pure, that was just about to be perfected. And, of course, it will be perfected when they're resurrected. But they had a glorious, pure, spiritual, godly character. And that's what we're all aiming for. And it's been an inspiration to me to have known such people, and I don't want to start mentioning all the names off the top of my head, but you know in your own heart and mind of those whom you think in the past who died in the faith, and they are the spirits of just men made perfect, as it tells us in Revelation. But we need God's Holy Spirit. And that key, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me in the life which I now live in the flesh. I live by the faith of the Son of God, Christ's faith, who loved me and gave himself for me. Let's turn to Philippians 2. Philippians 2. You know, sometimes we just uh, get despondent and tired and think, well, I, it's just too much effort for me. I, I don't know what I can do. Well, the Apostle Paul said one time when he was weak, he said, when I'm weak, then I am strong that the power of Christ may rest upon me. I feel that way sometimes, don't you? And you really need God's power as a gift that comes from him. But here is a remarkable promise that I claim, and I hope you will claim as well. Philippians 2 and verse 12. Therefore, my beloved... As you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Dr. Meredith mentioned one of those keys of spiritual growth last Sabbath, the fear of God. And another one I just mentioned in quoting from Mr. Armstrong in Mystery of the Ages, to be conquered by God. Those two keys are extremely fundamental and vital to have the fear of God, which is not contradictory to the love of God, 
and to be conquered by God. But he goes on here in verse 12. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Verse 13. Look at this. For it is God who works in you both to will and to do for his good pleasure. We have a sermon on how to please God in our church library. You might access that sometime. But what a remarkable promise. Maybe you're weak-willed. God can work in you both to will and to do of his good pleasure. He's not going to do it all for you. You have to go for it. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Tells us in James 4, 7, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Those are the two initiatives in James 4 that Mr. Armstrong referred to. Resist the devil, draw near to God. But what a wonderful promise. God works in you both to will and to do of his good pleasure. But that means, of course, you have to be be close to him in order to do that. We've uh, gotten through about half of the sermon. So... I thought when I was preparing this that it is going to require a second uh, part to this sermon. But I hope that you've seen today that godly character is very God's very purpose. But let's take a look at one very important scripture, uh, Romans the 8th chapter, Romans 8, and realize that Our calling is to grow in godly character, to be conformed to the very nature, mind, and character of Christ. It takes a lifetime. The beautiful thing is that we have all different personality, different talents, different abilities. The beautiful thing is that there's such an incredible variety in the human family. You take the variety in trees and plants and animals and minerals And God has put a variety of personalities and talents in his family. But we all must have that spiritual character as a foundation. Romans 8 and verse 29. For whom he did foreknow, or he, for whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. We are to be conformed to the image, that is, the character, the mind, and the nature of Christ. And as we grow in godly character, we need to pray as David did in Psalm 51, verse 10. I won't ask you to raise your hands, but when was the last time you asked God the same prayer that David prayed in Psalm 51, 10? Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. I hope that's your prayer. We have a calling to set the right example to the world. Anarchy and lawlessness will abound. Riots caused by mindless mobs will spread. But God has called us to be the light of the world and the salt of the earth. And because there is an elect, God will save the world from utter destruction. He's called us his nation, his citizens. We are the Israel of God. And our citizenship is in heaven, as it tells us in 
Philippians 3 and verse 20. We are spiritual Israel, destined to rule with Christ. We must continue persevering. We must continue enduring to the end. We are spiritual Israel, and we are growing in the character of God to demonstrate, as it told us in Deuteronomy, the fourth chapter, that we are close to that Creator God. And because of that closeness, we reflect the very nature and the mind and the character of Christ. So, brethren, let's continue to grow day by day, week by week, month by month, year by year, growing in godly character. That's our calling, and that's our destiny.